we're almost there, almost into the final four of this Ontario Hockey League season. And I think of that because my buddy Guy Flaming out west doing the Pipeline show, good guy, great show, sent me a message, said, hey, Farwell, when you get the final four set up over there, I need an unbiased perspective on the OHL. Can you help me out? I said, no, because if you want unbiased, you're asking the wrong guy. Anyway, great show. Great guy is Guy Guy the guy and uh, love the pipeline show. But this is the OHL podcast. Uh, that guy over there is Dan Mahar on Twitter at Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Send us an email, by the way, anytime. OHL podcast at Rogers.com. Let us know what you think about things. Let us know what you want to hear about anything at all on your mind. Feedback, constructive or otherwise. We've got some feedback to discuss on a number of things on this episode, including the playoffs to date. But I think, Dan, the most uh, lo- logical place to start is with the draft that was just completed this past weekend. A little over 300 names called out that could be, might be, maybe will be future Ontario Hockey Leaguers. Yeah, I'm a draft junkie. I just love this time of year. Sometimes more than the playoffs, depending on how things are going. <laughs> but no, I love I love the draft and what an exciting weekend it is for all those kids and their families. And for the ones that didn't get drafted, it's not over. A lot a lot of kids play in this league who did not hear their names called on draft day. Yeah, and that U18 draft will come up in a little bit as well. So another opportunity for those guys. You're right. I don't know about uh, things that jumped out to you at all, Dan. A few things for me. One is just being a guy from the region of Waterloo, I was watching very closely Brady Martin and a handful of other team or other players, pardon me, from that uh, U16 Waterloo Wolves team, which had, speaking of final fours, finished in the final four at the OHL Cup and had itself a a really nice season winning the uh, Alliance Championship for the U16s. Tyler Ertle, their coach, a previous guest on this podcast, did great things with the team. Obviously, the question was, how high was Brady Martin going to go? And it seemed widely regarded coming into the draft that top five would be where he lands. He ends up going third, which is the highest product to come out of the uh, Waterloo Minor Hockey Association in history, uh, beating Michael Latta in that regard. So great for Brady, great pickup for the Sioux Greyhounds. I say that strictly selfishly as a, a Waterloo region guy. One of the other things that jumped out to me was Tyler Hopkins, and he went fourth to Kingston. One of two Halton Hurricanes, by the way, in the top four, Matt Schaefer, who went first overall to Erie, also from the Halton Hurricanes. But what stood out to me about Hopkins was I heard his draft night interview with Terry Doyle as part of the coverage, and it's rare. Like he, He jumped off the screen at me. I was kind of half paying attention to the draft, half doing some other things, and he was he sounded so poised and and gave great articulate answers uh, as a young man and i'm not trying to knock any of the other kids i i know how intimidating it can be but he he really jumped off the screen to me i thought it was a a really good interview especially for a kid his age so that that stood out to me and and one of the other things uh jack ivankovic goes 7th overall a top 10 pick for a goaltender now jack's got some ohl bloodlines his father frank played for oshawa and London, most notably for London, with that historically dreadful 95 team. Sorry, Frank, don't mean to bring it up, but the numbers are what the numbers are. If you don't know the historically dreadful London Knights team, you can look it up, but they won three games in 1995. Anyway, Frank is with them, drafted into the uh, National Hockey League in the ninth round by Pittsburgh. 
now makes a living in the beer industry. Uh, didn't play in the show at all. Uh, finished his hockey career with Wilfrid Laurier University, did Frank. But Jack comes from some good bloodlines, and I think it speaks volumes of a goaltender, especially going top 10. So high level, those are some of the things that I noticed at the draft this past weekend. Yeah, all great storylines, Mike. And just, yeah, to tag on to your Brady Martin story, uh, the highest ever Waterloo product to go in the draft. And I, I heard rumblings before the draft, his family with their uh, farm just outside of Elmira would have loved to have him play close to home with Kitchener, Guelph, Owen Sound. But uh, those teams just were not drafting high enough, Mike. And he's quite happy, I think, to go to a good program like Sue. And that's a kid that really put his team on its back and to get into the semifinals at the OHL cup. I think a 200 foot guy does everything. Um, great shot, uh, puck skills, great vision, uh, expecting pretty much a superstar on the OHL level there in a couple of years from Brady Martin. Um, but yeah, well, how about the, that Halton hurricanes team? I mean, to go fourth overall and not be the top pick off your team. And you're, you're talking about, I believe two losses in regulation this year. If I have that right for those Halton hurricanes, just a stacked team. And you saw a bunch of their teammates as you went down that draft list in the first five, six rounds, just picking off Halton hurricanes. So what a, what a year they had. Um, and Ivankovic, I know there were a couple teams that were wanting to get their hands on him. I rumbling Sudbury really wanted him at nine. So just an athletic goaltender with some room to grow into the size that they're looking for in the, in the NHL draft this year. Uh, but all kinds of storylines out of this, uh, this draft this year, when you see just the, the number of kids whose names were spoken about as potential first rounders, Mike, or first or second rounders, uh, just an embarrassment of riches for teams to choose from. So this is where the scouting really comes in is who got it right, who missed because I think we probably had as many as 50 kids whose names came in the uh, first round conversation. So we'll, we'll see who got it right in the long run. Yeah. There was a lot of talk about the amount of high end talent in this draft and then how it may tail off from there. But speaking of, you know, the top 50 or even the top three, a few months ago, it was at least sounding to me anyway, like Ryan Rubrick was the de facto Number one, Ryan's older brother obviously plays in the Ontario Hockey League right now with the Oshawa Generals, and and he ends up going second to a pretty good Generals rivalry there in St. Catharines with the Niagara Ice Dogs. What do you think of Rubric, though, not ending up going first as Matt Schaefer did? Well, it's funny. The, the water's got a little murkier, I guess, in the last two months, I'd say, of this season where you're right. Rubric was kind of thought of as the number one overall guy for the better part of a year or more leading into this draft, like well before last draft, even there was, there was talk of Ryan Rubrek being number one overall this year. And it's not that he really slipped per se, but just a, a premier sniper. When you look at the stats, like that kid just finishes from anywhere on the ice. Uh, so it's not that he wasn't a legit number one pick again, but uh, at, at some point during the latter half of this year, there were four or five other kids that put themselves in that conversation. I think by the end of the year, Matthew Schaefer had kind of become the consensus top pick just with what he can do on the back end with his wheels, uh, size, kind of a well-rounded guy where almost a can't miss quarterback that you're going to have there for, for several seasons. Um, so positional need maybe came in a bit there. Um, so it's not a knock on Rubrek, but I think it just, it was the classic case of, horse jumps out to the early lead in that in that race and then some other horses come into the final stretch in the race so uh it, it was a tough call i'm sure for a lot of those teams but rubric going two is is not a 
big shock. You mentioned Brady Martin, obviously with a geographic tie that we know all too well here in the region, family hoping he might stay closer to home. You've got three options there, pretty darn close with Owen Sound, obviously Guelph and Kitchener, ends up in the Sioux. But it brings into the conversation, and I know this is something that's always on your mind, Dan, the idea of players either not reporting or to some degree the players and the families calling their shot when it comes to the draft. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it's a reality, Mike, and it's, it's rarely talked about in the public domain. So you don't hear a lot of this proven. You hear a lot of rumors. What we are pretty, we know this happens every year. And we know that, for example, this year with all of the uncertainty, I guess I'll call it politely that it happened in Niagara, that there, pardon me, there were a number of kids who, whose families flat out said, we're not going to report to Niagara. So Niagara was looking at, you know, who are the kind of second tier players that will willingly report here and we'll start, we'll start with them. And that's who they were looking at in their draft list. And fortunately, Ryan Rubrek and the Rubrek family had a change of heart late in the game, just, just day or two before the draft and, and confirmed that they would report to Niagara or that would have been a different pick. Um, so you see it every year. And I think the Brady Martin is another case where I don't think they were as firm saying they will not report anywhere other than those local teams, but it took some doing for Sue to, to convince the kid in the week leading up to the draft and talk to the family and discuss things. So an awful lot happens behind the scenes, Mike, and teams make their cases, make their pitches. And sometimes things change late. Sometimes they change for the worse. We saw a kid here, Mike, you and I based in Kitchener with Cole Longacre last year, picked second by the Kitchener Rangers had confirmed to them. He was going to come and then had a change of heart the other way late and, and didn't come and left Kitchener with no first or second round pick reporting. So an awful lot happens behind the scenes, um, but the common theme is if you don't run your team properly and you have a lot of turmoil, you're going to have trouble getting these high-end kids to report because the top 30, 40 kids in the draft have options, Mike. You just said exactly what's on my mind in this regard, and I wonder where the average fan's mind is on this, especially if you're a fan in the Niagara area cheering for the ice dogs for example because if a player doesn't report or doesn't want to show up there you might take that personally and i say that because i'm old enough to have been around when eric lindros not only snubbed the sault saint marie greyhounds but then further snubbed the quebec nordiques and i'll tell you what 30 years ago me was pretty fiery about that and thought this you know so and so this and so and so that but i've arrived now at a point in my life where i think what you just said nails it if you want players to report to your program run a better program i because what i think we forget and no i think i know what we forget especially in this league and i've said this a lot of times for the way that fans treat players when they're on the ice playing once they put on their equipment we forget that they're between the ages of 16 and 20 and i i'm always loath to bring up the the uh they're just kids argument but in this case, I'm going to, because I think we do forget about that. I know we forget about that when we watch these players. And so while our knee-jerk reaction might be, oh, that player is a so-and-so for not reporting, let's remember what we're talking about here. Try to put yourself in the position of a family whose 15-year-old kid, I've got a seven, almost 17-year-old at home, okay? So think of your 15-year-old kid being drafted to another city who knows how far, look, use the Brady Martin example. You can't get any further away from Elmira, Ontario than Sault Ste. Marie. 
right? So that's how far away the kid's going to go. You have to expect then that the kid will be well taken care of when they get there. We know that the SUS program, we've talked about it on this podcast, is a terrific program. So he's going to be in good hands. Maybe the Rubric family looks at Niagara and says, listen, they've got stabilized coaching now with Ryan Kuwabara, who's a, an excellent bench boss there. And until they get things sorted out in the front office, maybe this is just going to be an opportunity for the kid to get all kinds of ice time and really be the star of a team that's still trying to figure some stuff out. But coaching, I think they've got stability, and I think it's a good thing in Niagara. But the point is, I'm getting at it in a very long-winded way, which is a habit I have to break. But you're sending a 15-year-old kid away from home to a brand-new city to be essentially taken care of. I don't think we should overlook that. So run better programs. And that that speaks for the Ontario Hockey League in competition with the NCAA and the Niagara Ice Dogs in competition with 19 other teams in the OHL. Yeah, it's a fabulous point because we all like to judge from a distance, but you really have to look at the mirror and say, if this were my 15-year-old kid, what would I be concerned about? And you're concerned about everything, Mike. Like you're concerned about how they're going to be treated when they're there, their billet family, their nutrition, their schooling, et cetera. And then, of course, you have to have the foresight to worry about how they're going to be left when they leave that town. Will they have developed as a hockey player? Will they have pro opportunities, at very least educational opportunities in the Canadian University Loop or what have you? So you're thinking of all these things. And then even smaller things that you might not even consider or come into play, which I'm sure was part of Niagara's pitch to Ryan Rubrek, which is ice time and opportunity. Sometimes you look at that roster as a 15-year-old and you see a bunch of returning players, you say, I'm not going to play this year. I, I Do I lose a year where I hardly play? Or you look at a team that might look like they're completely disorganized and discombobulated and going to be terrible and lose most of their games and say, great, I'm going to play a lot. So all these factors are swirling around in these families' heads and players' heads. Uh, but the bottom line is the number one way you can sway them to come your way is a good, solid, consistent program. You consistently develop your players. You have good coaching. You have a good environment. And over the course of their three or four years there, things turn out well for the majority of your players. And that's, I'm sure, an argument Sue was able to make to the Martin family. I, I hope we can add into that conversation, too, that the player comes away from the organization and the experience in the Ontario Hockey League as a well-rounded, well-developed young man as well, because I, I don't love the connection that could be made between the opportunity the player is going to get on the ice so that they can develop get more eyes on them in terms of scouts and maybe move into the pros because of course we know how much money is at stake here. I get it, but I really hope there is an emphasis as great as possible that we can place on this, that they also develop as human beings because these, again, if you just think back on our own lives between the ages of 15, 16 and 20, those are pretty critical development years in a young person's life. They're absolutely critical, Mike, and I couldn't agree with you more on that. And I know that not every city, not every organization has the same emphasis that you're talking about. But for me as a parent, it would be absolutely critical that how are you coaching my son or daughter as a human? Uh, respect, respect for opponent, respect for women, respect for you name it. Those components are critically learned in those age ranges. And if you're not going to be living under your, your parents' roof, under their tutelage, 
someone else is dictating a lot of that development for you. And that's a scary prospect as a parent. So you have to be convinced by the organization that they're going to look after that and have similar values to you and similar plans as you would have. And that's a big thing. And the parents that take that seriously, that's just one more box that these organizations have to be checking. Since last we spoke, uh, Coach of the Year has been named in the Ontario Hockey League. And more recently, we'll get to Coach of the Year in a moment, uh, really within hours of us recording this episode of the OHL podcast. George Burnett gets a three-year extension with the Guelph Storm. What say you? Well, I mean, if George Burnett tells you he wants to hang around for three years, you're probably saying, awesome, that's great. Uh, the question was probably whether or not he wanted to. And and it's good news for the Guelph Storm that he did. I think we're we're looking at a Guelph Storm team that could make some noise next year based on the roster they compiled and some of the moves they made at the deadline. So some stability there ties into the conversation we just had, that if you're looking to send your kid to the Guelph Storm, they've got a stable franchise that has experienced leadership there and probably a place that you'd be comfortable sending your kid. George Burnett, I've always had a soft spot for because when I was – much younger in this league and still kind of figuring it out. Uh, I got to know George a little bit when he was in Belleville. And then the 07 to 08 season where the Rangers and Belleville Bulls went seven games in the OHL final. Kitchener was hosting the Memorial Cup. That's when I really cemented a, at least a professional relationship with George Burnett. And I'll never forget day one of the Memorial Cup. I come wandering into the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium the same way I always do, because that's home rink for me, right? So why would anything be different now that there's just this, you know, national junior hockey championship in town? And of course, the way I went in, I got stopped by security. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in my own city here. Like, what's happening? And before they could escort me out, because I was in completely the wrong place, George was like maybe 30 meters away talking to... uh Pete Lombardius and uh, and Sam Cosentino, some of the other media, or was it Falsey? Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's talking to the other guys, and he waved off the security and like, like, come on, like you're you're okay here. And I'm like, see, see, George Burnett, he's he that that guy over there. Anyway, I've always appreciated that of George a little bit of a professional courtesy because, and I went in the right door the next time I came back to the rink. I just I was a fish out of water. I was pretty young. Uh, I always remember George for that and a. A previous guest on this podcast, who was a a broadcast colleague of mine, Greg Brady, uh, had a different experience with George because Greg showed up late for an interview with George Burnett. And George, if you don't know this about him, and I don't think it's changed over the years, if the time to meet is 5 p.m., then that doesn't mean 5.01. It means 5 p.m. or or sooner. So when Brady was five minutes late, George grudgingly did the interview, but reminded Greg that there's a reason we have schedules for things. And maybe that's why George and I bonded, because I try very hard as well to be punctual at things. Anyway, I thought I'd share that. And I I'm also glad for George and the Guelph Storm. This is a guy that led them to a championship in 2019. There's only been one, well, counting this year now, two playoffs since with the lost season. So... We'll, uh, we'll see what they can do, but he's got another chance, I think, in the cycle here to build another winner in Guelph. Yeah, and 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 I got to say, I'm 100% with George Burnett on the punctuality thing. I'm, if you're not five minutes early, you're late. So that I'm totally with him. I, I do question his judgment somewhat, though, when he let, told security to let you into the building. So I don't know. I got to rethink this whole uh, George Burnett thing a little bit, but I'm, I'm liking most of what I'm seeing.
it's fair because I haven't left the building since. So if you got a beef with me, you got a beef with Burnett. That's the way it all works out here, I think. Okay, uh, from a general manager who used to have the dual portfolio to a guy that, no, he I was going to say he had it in Mississauga, but he didn't have the dual portfolio in Mississauga. Yeah, he did. Dave Cameron, right? Was coach GM there? Yeah. Anyway, Dave Cameron, that was a, a segue that I was really failing at. Dave Cameron is the Ontario Hockey League's coach of the year leading the Ottawa 67s, not just to the regular season points championship, but to their third regular season points championship in four years. Uh, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, when you, well, when you're talking coach of the year, it's tough when you're handing out these things, right? Because fortunately, when you have uh, stats like that in a ledger like that, it makes life a little easier because you could easily look at this league this year and pick three, four, five candidates that would have been completely worthy. But the year Dave Cameron had, and you always, for me, a, a litmus test for coach of the year is you always look at a team and what year they're supposed to arrive and if they do what they're supposed to do, great, sure, but you did what you're supposed to do. If you didn't do what you're supposed to, yeah, you're not anywhere near that conversation. It's the teams that are supposed to be a year out and they do it this year. Those are the teams that you look and say, well, that that coach is doing something right. And then, of course, I'm thinking, you know, uh, Chris Lazari, you're thinking Dave Cameron. So so kudos to the year he's put up in in Ottawa. What a, What an impressive track record. You could, in all honesty, add Dale Hunter to that, right? Yeah, you always can add Dale Hunter for sure. Right, but absolutely at a time where I know they did make some additions, but certainly early on, where were the pundits predicting London would finish this year? Way back in September, right? So I think Dale would be in the conversation for sure. Yeah, and I have to, I have to say, I kind of say that dismissively, uh, which is probably something that happens to London more more often than not because you forget about them because they're always so good and you say yeah yeah they're always in the in the mentions let's give someone new a shot a shot but you're absolutely right what Dale Hunter's done there is probably more impressive than anyone else in the league I want to I want to add another name into this and I and I want to be clear about this kudos to Dave Cameron what Dave Cameron just did for I'm of an identical mind to you on this Dan on a year that you didn't expect it to go the way that it's gone, you win the third regular season points championship in four years. It's impressive as hell uh, organizationally in Ottawa and that Dave Cameron in his first year back behind the bench was able to do this with the 67s. I think it's great. I think it shows that he can not only relate to players at this level still, but get the very best out of them. So fully deserving is Dave Cameron, okay? I want to make that clear, but I also want to ask the question. And it struck me initially, and then when I heard some of the numbers, I was it was it was itching at me or scratching at me even a little bit more. So I thought that at least in the conversation this year, and I don't get a vote on this. So you know, when the when the Red Tilson gets awarded, you can you can complain to me about that if you don't like it. If I, I can tell you who I picked then, because I get a vote on that one, but I don't get a vote on the Coach of the Year. But for me, I thought a guy's name that that could have, should have been in contention was Jay McKees. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is he's coming off an OHL championship where, you know, arguably, even if you have a team that's loaded and expected, there is still a challenge in getting them to where Jay McKee got the Bulldogs last year. And then you've got a team this year that traded away every single veteran. And by the end of the trade deadline, the Hamilton Bulldogs were the youngest team 
in the Ontario Hockey League. And up until about two weeks to go in the regular season, they were still contending for fourth place and home ice advantage in the first round of the playoffs. So I think it was pretty impressive. And, and I thought Jay McKee might be in, in serious consideration this year. Then Dave Cameron's name gets announced. You're like, well, it makes sense. 51 wins, 107 points, and a regular season points championship. Well, guess what? A season ago, Jay McKee with the Hamilton Bulldogs, 51 wins, 107 points, and a regular season points championship. In fact, the only one that Ottawa hasn't won in the past four years. But Jay McKee didn't win the Coach of the Year award last year either. So I recognize that when I bring something like this up, it's the accusations will fly, and they already have. Why are you pissing all over Dave Cameron? I'm not. That's why I wanted to make it clear up front. I think Dave's great. I think he's deserving. But isn't that a little bit curious? So the identical numbers that Dave Cameron put up with Ottawa this year were put up by Jay McKee with Hamilton last year, but Jay McKee didn't win the coach of the year then. And then this year, when Hamilton trades away everybody and Jay McKee still keeps the so-called misfits in contention, it's a guy that put up the same numbers as Jay last year that gets the coach of the year award this year. I'm just asking the question, was was the man in consideration? Is it worth considering? Or do you just have to shut your mouth and say, good job, Dave? Which I'll say, but I'm not going to shut my mouth. I think it's curious that Jay McKee has not been awarded coach of the year at this point. Yeah, it's a fair point. When you, I mean, you can look at the numbers. You can look at other factors. Who, who else did well in that year that you're comparing to, and you can look at things like what were they supposed to do? We know the Hamilton Bulldogs had a very loaded roster last year, whereas maybe this year Ottawa was a little younger. So maybe that's a tick mark in Dave Cameron's, but, but, but I think the whole exercise you're right, Mike, is not to take anything away from anyone. It's just to acknowledge who deserves acknowledgement and Jay McKee, what a, what a terrific year they put up this year after, particularly after the trade deadline when they moved out some bodies. And, you know, you could say the same for James Richmond, what a, what a great job they did. Uh, so some of these coaches really seem to pull a lot out of these younger rosters. And Jay McKee, I, I'll say one thing for Jay McKee, whether he has hardware on his shelf or not, is that he's starting to establish a pretty good track record there, regardless of what, what he has on, on, on the roster. I think there are a few debtors said, well, let's see what he does without a championship caliber team. Well, you just saw, uh, did pretty darn well. Uh, gave those Barry Colts every bit of trouble they could handle in, in the playoffs. So, so you're right, Mike, I think there's just a little bit of acknowledgement deserving here for Jay McKee. I'm thinking of the uh, classic movie quote. I came here for two things uh, to kick ass and chew bubble gum. And I'm all out of bubble gum. So my work in the Ontario hockey league is to say he shoots, he scores and to ask questions. And I'm all out of he shoots, he scores because the Rangers have been eliminated. So I'm just not going to stop asking questions. I think there are questions to ask and talking points to be had. And that's what a podcast is for. That's what you're listening to. It's called the OHL podcast. Dan Mahar on Twitter at Dan Mahar. My name's Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. We still have performers of the week to get to. Plus, what's been going on? in these Ontario Hockey League playoffs anyway. So what's been going on in these Ontario Hockey League playoffs? I guess we can look at two things, Dan. 
the London Knights and the Sarnia Sting appear to be buzzsaws in the Western Conference because London is through uh, in a sum total of nine games and Sarnia has taken just 10 to meet up for the Western Conference final, which should be a dandy. Yeah, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think you and I both predicted the, the Sarnia Sting North Bay Battalion finals and i think we're still on track for that i mean the sarnia sting are my my team that i'm i think they're the best of the bunch um but that's a great bunch and if it doesn't go that way and nothing's going to shock me because every every team left in the playoffs is putting on a, a heck of a performance and making a case for themselves but uh those buzz saws in the west like you just mentioned getting into the second round and sweeping their opponents like that that says something when you have a team that's already won a playoff round and they can't even win a game in the series. So, and those were pretty good teams. So just fully impressed with what you're seeing out of Sarnia and, uh, and London right now. And I would say that, you know, a, a little bit of a subtle tip of the cap to the Guelph storm who maybe woke up those sting and helped them cure a couple uh bad habits in, in round one, because they gave them enough of a scare that they sure did not look like, uh, like they were sleeping in round two. Was uh, London's performance over Kitchener so dominating in the four games that they won that you're forgetting that Kitchener did win a game in that series? Oh, yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sorry, I was calling the sweeps. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, it, it it felt it felt like a domination because I think just about every game, just about every game was a blowout, and Kitchener didn't score a goal in the last two. But yes, fair, fair, fair enough. They did win a game. You're right. I thought of that coming home from the final game, and I thought, wow. For two games, damn you, Brett Brochu. I never got to say scores for the Kitchener Rangers. It was an impressive performance uh, by the London Knights for sure. But I think probably the most impressive performance of these playoffs so far was over in the Eastern Conference. And I want to just make sure that I'm clear on this point. Uh, we are recording this ahead of game six between Peterborough and Ottawa. So by the time you're listening to this, the series could be over. The Peets could have punched a ticket to the East final. But whatever happens in game six, and if there is a game seven, I don't think many are going to forget what the Ottawa 67s did in game five. They're down three games to one in the series, and they're down 4-1 after 40 minutes in game number five. So the Peets are on the brink of advancing in five games. And I remember I was checking scores because I was out at an event and I thought, wow, geez, the Pete's, I, I picked the Pete's to win the series, but in five games. And then I checked back on the scores later, four third period goals, including the winner with just over two minutes to play. And Ottawa comes back to force that game sixth. That's impressive. Very impressive. And you got to imagine that that coach of the year speech between second and third periods in the intermission must've been something to pull that out of them. Uh, they're certainly capable and Peterborough has been an enigma all year looks way better on paper than what we saw on the ice at times. And then the playoffs, they turned it on. And I think we identified they're built for the playoffs. And this is a team that this is the time they're supposed to shine and they're shining. What's surprising with that game you just referenced though, Mike is, is if there's one thing I would have, thought Peterborough was rock solid on that's protecting a three goal lead with one period to go with the goaltending and defense they have in the acquiring Owen back with his face off prowess and 200 foot game and the tools they can throw at you. Yeah, I did not foresee Peterborough blowing a three goal lead. I thought their challenge might be getting a three goal lead. 
uh, in these playoffs. So uh, just all kinds of intrigue in, in, in that series and, and both teams kind of like a heavyweight tilt. So we'll see how that one ends. Again, reminding you that this is being recorded before the game begins, but I'll say this, the Pete's want no part of going back to Ottawa for game seven. That, like now you you want to get this one on home ice for sure. Oh yeah. I, I imagine they're, they're razor focused because you, you being a Leaf fan, Mike, no, you don't want to blow that three game lead and have to go to a game seven on the other team's home ice or anyone's home ice. But, uh, but yeah, the, uh, the Pete's are going to be fired up for tonight and, and, Again, heavyweight tilt, both teams. It's it's almost impossible to predict what's going to happen when you got these teams this good. And as it tends to happen in stories like this, you did mention the coach of the year speech that must have been there after two periods that rallied Ottawa. But you spend so much time focusing on the team that couldn't hold the lead. You have to you have to give a nod here. Like I'm just trying to put myself in that locker room, right? After 40 minutes when Dave Cameron says whatever he said. And it it must have been something along the lines of, you know, it, do you want your season to end today or do you not want your season to end today? And the Ottawa 67s clearly decided they did not want their season to end in game five of the semifinals because that's as impressive a comeback in the, in the magnitude of the moment, right? Not only is it playoffs, but it's an elimination game. So it's basically a situation where you're either going to come out and play the period of these playoffs or you're going to go home. And I think you really got to give a nod to the Ottawa 67s for what they did. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. A lot of credit goes there. But I mean, just again, not taking anything away from Dave Cameron, but it's got to be nice to look up and down that bench and see how many weapons you've got that could potentially come through for you. You know, yeah, you added a Logan Morrison, Paddle Minchikov, you got already got Jack Matier, you got Jack Beck, you've got Luca Pinelli's scoring up a storm in the playoffs, you got Vincenzo Rohrer, you got Tolmai, you, you name it. There's just so many weapons there that if, if a team's going to be able, to come back from a three goal deficit, it if that's your task, and you look up to, up and down the bench and see those odds are a couple of those are going to be firing on any given night, and what a what a luxury that is. It's a lot of fun to watch, and those two series both uh, going deep as it's already now coming to a sixth game for North Bay and Barry, and the battalion put up a playoff high seven to take game five, and now put the Barry Colts on the brink. Yeah. And I, again, this is kind of as we expected, right, Mike? Like this was again, like everywhere you look, it's heavyweight tilts and, and you can't bet against a team that's running Brant Clark out there on the back end 30 minutes a night, nor can you bet against a team that has similar level of weapons up and down the lineup as Ottawa and that North Bay battalion team. And so it's just a, it's what's great about playoff hockey. It's who's bringing it on any given night. Who's going to dig the deepest. And I think just when you think one team looks down and out, like North Bay almost was down two on the series, trailing three, one in the game, they start coming at you. And, uh, and and now the momentum has swung in their favor. And now Barry looks, looks a little bit on the ropes. So who knows? It's, it's all kinds of intrigue and it's nice going into a game, knowing no team really has the advantage. Yeah, and from the outside looking at it, it's just nice to watch or it's fun to watch some playoff series go a little deeper because, I mean, we had a good seven-game series in the West in round one between Saginaw and Flint. Uh, and you mentioned the Gulf Storm throwing that little bit of a scare into the Sarnia Sting, perhaps taking them to six in 
the first round, but but really the East in the semifinals has been the place to watch and they've been a lot of fun. Okay, as always, we like to finish things off by uh, taking a look at what we've now morphed into a performer of the week. There aren't just enough games to look around saying, hey, we're going to pick a, a prospect coming up in the NHL draft. And even if there were prospects playing, which there are, they're not getting the same kind of ice time. So who do you have this week, Dan, as your performer of the week? All right, well, Mike, I, I hope I'm not stealing yours, but I had to, I had to go with just looking at the crazy stats. My guy this week is Brett Brochu. Yeah, just four shutouts in two two rounds of playoffs, uh, sub two goals against average, save percentage way almost <laughs> approaching 950 through this. It's just crazy numbers. I mean, you play a team with as much firepower as Kitchener and not surrender a goal in the last two games. Uh, I know a lot of credit there goes to the team defense, the scheme they're playing, uh, really committed all-around teams. This is almost a nod for the whole London Knights team, but stats you're seeing out of Brett Brochu in junior hockey in these playoffs had to earn him on a performer of the week in my my corner. How about you, you, Mike? We talked earlier about the London Knights and how you kind of just glossed them over because the success just seems to follow year after year after year. And despite all of that, the playoff round that Brett Brochu won with the Knights over Owen Sound was the first playoff round he'd won in his career. And these four shutouts that he now has registered, I believe even at three, it was a a London Knights playoff record. Just think of that. Over all the years and all the success, three shutouts, now four, is a London Knights playoff record. So I'm glad you brought up the team the way that you did because, again, not taking anything away from the guy, but he had to make 41 saves for both shutouts, combined 41 saves, 25 and 16 shots, not to take anything away from him, particularly in game four, where he had to be good early to hold off a Ranger team that was pretty hungry, but you're right. That team, and maybe this is a conversation for, you know, another podcast, but if if winning is the most important thing and it's the most exciting thing, then you're lucky in London because the style of hockey, eh, if can we be honest about this? It's not, it's not exactly going to set your pants on fire, but anyway, I'll get off of that and uh, come over to my performer of the week and I'm staying in the West. So all the people that think I'm too Western biased suck it because I am, um, <laughs> I don't, we talked, come on, we already talked about the East, but I'm going to give it to Luca Delbel Belouz. Uh, this week. He's got points in five straight games, goals in three in a row, and 11 points with six goals, five assists, and 10 playoff games. So I don't want to shortchange him just because Sarnia finished off uh, uh, Saginaw in four straight games, and he he hasn't had the opportunity to play a fifth and a sixth, and maybe even a seventh game. Uh, Full marks to him for really getting hot when it matters. Again, points in five straight. Goals in three straight. Luca. Del Bell Blues is my performer of the week. Yeah, great choice. And along with that one, Mike, if I may, just a quick tip of the cap too to Dylan Sika and the team he's built there. Because what a what a great job of identifying the gaps you needed to fill and doing it with just about the best possible asset available on the market. Um, so yeah, Sarnia Sting look extremely difficult to beat. We'll see if London's system can can shut them down. But a great call on your performer of the week. You know. Now that you bring that up, just real quick as we wrap up this episode of the OHL podcast, it's hard to imagine as well that the win over Saginaw for the Sarnia Sting was an historic victory for the franchise. In all of their years, including the Steven Stamkos years, 
the team never advanced past the second round. Got to the second round, never won it until this year. That's wild to me. It's wild when you consider what well, you just referenced a couple of, but you, when you consider the talent that has come through there and, and, you know, it's almost, it's hard to believe they didn't get to the conference championship based on the talent that has come through Sarnia. So it's, eh. I mean, we could, that could be a whole podcast, just, just determining how Sarnia managed to not make a conference finals up to this point, but congratulations to the fans that have hung in there. You're finally getting rewarded. And how much fun is that going to be with the 402 series now between London and Sarnia in the West final? Oh, it's long overdue. And, and, you know, I, it's, it's nice to see that both it's a pick them, right? It's, it's, it's not, Oh, this is going to be uh London steamrolling. It's if London wins this series, they earned it. Cause you're going to have to earn it against that Sarnia sting roster. That's a great point. We know what the West looks like. The East is yet to be decided, but one thing we know for sure, this is the OHL podcast, and we like to think it's your number one source online for OHL information. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode. Please like, subscribe, tell a friend, send an email anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. Every Tuesday, you get an episode like this where Dan and I banter and bicker and have some fun about the league. Every Friday, you get a feature interview. I'm going to be honest, I was a little bit nervous for the feature interview you're going to hear this week, because this guy not only has pretty impeccable OHL pedigree, but also NHL pedigree. He was wearing a C on his sweater for a long time with an NHL organization. He coached in Guelph. He coached in, if I say this, well, it doesn't matter. He coached in his hometown of Sault Ste. Marie and he is our guest as the feature interview. Just retired from the National Hockey League. Uh, last stop was with the Columbus Blue Jackets. So he is going to join us. And boy, has he got stories to tell for our feature interview on Friday. And I will just say, for those listeners and viewers who are under about the age of 40, one of the most criminally underrated players ever to play. He was up there with the best of the best ever. He really was. And if not for injury, who knows where that conversation leads. But it's a fun one that you get to hear on the Friday episode of the OHL podcast. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. Find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. I'm Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Interact, commits, and have fun at the OHL games. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.